Are you ready to make 2017 the year you transform your life? You can wait for something to happen, or you're actually going to decide to go, go home after this weekend to do something about that. We all know that we have a very, very limited amount of time on this earth. So let's not have repeated years. Live your own life. Make the choice, make the decision for your own life. Fear is where you develop courage. There's a moment going, holy crap, all right, I'm gonna do this now. The Wellness Breakthrough is coming. And so you actually have that choice every single morning, every single day, every single moment to decide whether you're gonna live it to the fullest or not. Join myself, Marcus Pierce, and the Wellness Guys, Damien Christoph, Lawrence Tam, and Brett Hill for two nights and three days of transformation at the Country Place. Ten acres of breathtaking rainforest in the Dandenong Ranges of Victoria, February 17th to 19th. It's each and every single one of you are going to support each other in your journey, whatever that journey is. Couples discounts available, limited spots remaining for all information and to watch the spine-chilling video, go to thewellnessbreakthrough.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome back to another episode of The Real Food Real. Today on the show we are joined by Rebecca Coombs from The Healthy Gut. Rebecca's here to share her story and teach us all about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Hi Rebecca and thanks for joining the show. It's my pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me Steph. Amazing. So really looking forward to chatting. Um, As we do with all of our guests um, in their first appearance on the show, could you share a little bit about your story and your background in the lead up to where you are today? Of course, I'd love to. Uh, so I um, I had a pretty tough start right from, from the start. I was born two months premature and my poor mum and I nearly died in the process in my in my haste to get out into the world and get on with life. And um, and so I was put onto formula. My, my mum couldn't breastfeed me and I was put onto um, cow's milk pretty much right from the start and also pumped full of antibiotics and the, my poor little body was just not really coping with uh, with that rough start to life and so I got every kind of illness going. I was really not great with dairy but the doctors in the 70s and the, and the eight, early 80s and their wisdom, you know, didn't believe that there was much of a connection with food and symptoms. So they told my mum to persevere and keep giving me dairy and I'd got sicker and sicker. Um, and and so as a kid, I just remember being really sick. I remember saying to my mum all the time, you know, mummy, I feel really sick. And she'd say, what's wrong? And I'd say, I don't know, but my tummy hurts and I just feel nauseous. And we'd go down to the doctors and they'd run tests and they'd come back 
absolutely fine and the doctor would say there's nothing wrong with you and uh, as I got into my um my teens and then my 20s, my food intolerances, as I now know them to be food intolerances, just started to escalate. And quite a lot of foods would make me feel, feel quite sick. Um, I was constantly bloated and chronically constipated. So I didn't actually know you were supposed to go to the toilet every day. I thought going once a week, maybe twice a week if I was lucky, was the norm. And uh, it was a real surprise to me in my in my 30s. <laughs> in more recent times when I discovered that I was supposed to go to the toilet every single day. Um, and by my mid-20s, I had been diagnosed with endometriosis, which is a condition affecting the uterus, uh, and it's a, a reproductive disorder in women. And it was my first experience of going to a doctor who was more holistic in her approach. And I'd already had one laser treatment to remove the adhesions from the endo in my abdominal cavity. And she said to me, I don't want to do another operation with you until we address what uh, you know what I see with some of my other ladies, and that is that wheat and dairy are quite problematic. And she said, I don't know what the connection is, but I know that my ladies often feel significantly better and their symptoms improve when they cut these substances out. So I'd like you to reduce or remove them completely for three months and let's see what happens. Now, at this point, I would have firmly stated that I had no food allergies, despite the fact that I felt pretty sick all the time. Uh, and within literally 24 hours of removing gluten and dairy, I felt like a brand new person. And, you know, I had all this energy. I didn't have the three o'clock slump. And I was in that cycle where I'd have a, a grain-based cereal for breakfast. I'd have coffee in my mid-morning and generally a sugary snack to perk me up. I'd have a sandwich or a bread roll at lunchtime. And then by three o'clock, I would slump to the you know, to the depths of the ocean where I felt like I was literally going to collapse at my desk from exhaustion. So I'd go and have some sugar and some caffeine to perk me up to get me through to dinner time. And then I might have something sweet at the end of the day. So I was on this sugar roller coaster. And when, when I um, cut out all of the um, carbohydrates that I was getting, you know, this huge carb load from all of the gluten that I ate and I was replacing it with salads and protein, um, I felt so much better. And that lasted for quite some time and my endometriosis symptoms definitely reduced, but it didn't disappear. And um, within about two years, a lot of my symptoms had returned. So I could see that whilst I was avoiding gluten and dairy, other things were affecting me, but there seemed to be no rhyme or reason. So I'd, I'd eat um, one item one day and I was vegetarian at the time. So I'd eat lentils one day and it would be fine. And then I'd eat them the next day and I'd have really bad bloating and I'd feel quite gassy and, and feel quite lethargic. Um, and so I had been living over in the UK for many years and I returned to Australia and began eating meat again. And I thought that it was quite interesting that by increasing my protein intake, I felt better. And I really commenced my um, my search in earnest for answers. <clears throat> excuse me, as to why I felt so sick, and so that kind of commenced the journey to lots of doctors going and having lots of blood tests and saying, I'm bloated, I don't go to the toilet, um, I've got a lot of pain and uh, I get really bad heartburn, I'm exhausted, my brain feels foggy, um, what's wrong with me? Am I 
am I on my way to cancer? And that's what I was, t- I was terrified of. And every single doctor would run tests and say, you're fine. In fact, you've got the perfect health based on your blood tests. Uh, but I knew I wasn't fine. I felt so sick and I couldn't lose weight no matter how many times I went to Weight Watchers and strictly counted calories. And one night in desperation, I was um, on Dr. Google, which always comes back and says you're, you've got cancer, which I don't, <laughs> I don't recommend anyone try and diagnose themselves with Google because it's always the worst case scenario. And I found this naturopath whose name kept cropping up on various websites and she wasn't too far from me. And I thought, I need to go and see this lady. And I walked through her doors, sat down in her clinic and burst into tears. And and, uh, she said, how can I help you? And I said, I don't know. And I don't know what's wrong with me, but I feel so sick and I'm at my wits end. And like, you are literally my last resort. And very quickly, she was able to get a sense of my, um, my health history. And I'd had a lot of food poisonings. I'd taken a huge amount of antibiotics over my lifetime um, because I've been so sick sick. And she said, I suspect that you've got small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO as it's known. And she ran a breath test, which was super easy to do. And it came back very positive. And within a matter of weeks of treatment commencing for that, I felt like, you know, once again, I felt like a new person, but this time it has stuck and uh, it's really been life-changing. So I'm so grateful for that naturopath uh, that she knew what she was doing when I walked through her doors two years ago. Wow. Yeah, that's a quite the journey. Um, now you're obviously doing some amazing things, sharing your story and obviously a lot of education with your audience. So I wanted to start with some background information about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or for those that might be familiar with the acronym SIBO. Can you start from the top as to what that means and we'll move through diagnosis and treatment? Sure. So it literally means that you've just got too much bacteria in your small intestine and it's normal bacteria. It's bacteria that should be in our large intestine and something has to go wrong in your intestinal system for that bacteria to end up there. So our body has got a whole series of mechanisms in place in a natural and healthy uh, and normal working digestive system to keep the bacteria moving through. Uh, The purpose of the small intestine is to absorb the nutrients from our food, whereas the job of the large intestine is to break down the the last remaining bits of food to turn it into feces, and we use bacteria to do that. Um, And so literally it just means this bacteria has ended up in the wrong place. It's set up, it's having a wonderful party because the small intestine isn't designed to have it there. So the body... um, the body's mechanisms have failed to let it get there and this and the bacteria are like, woohoo, this is the best place ever because they're getting uh, you know, the first wash of our food and they particularly love carbohydrates and sugars and fermentable fibers. Uh and SIBO is is um the most common cause for irritable bowel syndrome. So anyone that's been told you've got IBS, which is what I had been told for years, SIBO is believed to cause anywhere from 60 to 80% of those cases when they've studied people that claim to have, so they've got IBS, they actually um, often have SIBO. So to me, it was a huge revelation to 
be told I had IBS and there was nothing they could do about it. And then to actually discover I had this underlying condition, which was just causing all of my symptoms. And so the symptoms of SIBO uh, are very much uh, aligned with IBS symptoms. The most common are pain so digestive pain anywhere in your abdominal area, um, bloating is really common and, and so us ladies will often feel like we look pregnant and then um, people will generally find that they've either got constipation, which I had, or they'll have diarrhea or they may swing between the two. So you might be constipated for a while and then you might find that you've got diarrhea for a while and then you'll go back to being constipated um, and that process continues um, to infinity sometimes. Uh, and the other thing that occurs is people start to become intolerant to certain foods. So very much like myself where I, initially I was intolerant to dairy, then it was wheat, then it was gluten, then it was all kind of lentils and legumes, then it was um, some fructose foods. So onion and garlic and chili were starting to become quite problematic. Then it was wine was giving me really bad symptoms and I was getting concerned that this list of foods was kind of growing um, and I didn't know when it would stop. And so that's also a really common uh, signal that the digestive system isn't working as optimally as it can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I'm totally in agreement with you about that IBS connection. I, I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be a huge relief to people that are learning that for the first time because as we know, IBS is, you know, a very general sweeping diagnosis with with no treatment. So it can be very, um, you know, I guess overwhelming to be diagnosed with that. And I guess be told that you've just got to suck it up and put up with it. But now obviously science has changed, um, to, I guess, uncover that SIBO is, you know, the, the culprit for so many of these IBS conditions. Yeah, definitely. And, and, uh, and I, I know I myself felt enormous relief to mm. finally have a diagnosis and a name for it. And one of the biggest causes of SIBO is food poisoning. So, and there's a new um, test that's come out of the States, unfortunately, and it's not yet available in Australia, but uh, a doctor over there called Dr. Mark Pimentel and his team have discovered that when one is exposed to a food poisoning incident that the bacteria that we consume in that um, food poisoning can often damage our um, our nervous system, the nerves in our gut, and it can create an immune response, which we can then have, um, you know, a markers in our blood that can show that if we have developed IBS type symptoms after food poisoning that, and therefore then subsequently developed SIBO, that um, they can now see that it's come from food poisoning. So it's really exciting that science is starting to catch up um, and we're, we're able to see more of what's going on in the gut than, than we could. Uh, and I looked at myself and I have literally had food poisoning I would say 20 times. I I started to get really susceptible to food poisoning. Um, every time I go out of Australia to a more uh, to a less developed country, so not to say the UK or America, but 
anywhere in Asia, South America. Um, I've been to parts of Africa and I am literally guaranteed within the first two or three days to have a case of food poisoning. And so once you get it once, you're more susceptible to getting it again. Um, and I never knew why. I used to think, but I'm not, no one else is getting it. Why do I always get sick? Why do I always have really dodgy guts when I'm traveling? And now I know that my little, uh, my poor little nervous system in my gut has, has been damaged and compromised from uh, multiple exposures to food poisoning. And um, so it was really good to have an answer finally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But so what about those people that haven't experienced food poisoning that maybe have either had a bit of a red light go off that they are potential candidates for SIBO or someone that's being diagnosed that can't figure out perhaps where it all started? What are some other potentials? Well, there's, we look at it in two ways. So the first thing is to understand why it happens. And there's really two reasons why it happens. One is that the, what's called motility or the movement of the digestive system has stopped working properly. We've got this really cool thing called the migrating motor complex, which is like a sweeper wave that goes through the um, digestive system every 90 minutes between meals. And it's like, if you imagine a, a person with a big broom sweeping up all the leftover food particles in our digestive system and sweeping them along to then move them down into the large intestine. And that stops working in, in SIBO um, or it is impaired. Um, and the other thing that can happen is that we can have structural issues. So we might have had an injury or an operation to have caused the, a structural issue around the, um, the small intestine. So things like having your appendix removed, having the cesarean operation, for myself having endometriosis and having several um, laser surgeries where they went through my belly button and, and uh, um, could have easily damaged my small intestine. So those are the two biggest causes for, for um, f why it happens. But then there's lots of risk factors as to how that can happen. So there can be things like drugs or pharmaceuticals. So um, use of antibiotics is a really common way for the um, digestive system not to work so well. So anyone that's had um, any antibiotics can be at risk. Uh, proton pump inhibitors, which are really commonly prescribed, can also um, lead to the movement of the small intestine not working. So anyone that's on acid blockers or that takes um, heartburn medication or even uh, for some babies, they're put on medication if they've got really bad colic and spit up. Uh, that can often lead to the movement really slowing down. Um, obviously, food poisoning is a really big one, but if you've ever gone uh, had a case of gastro or, um, you know, stomach flu, any kind of infection to the um, digestive system can cause the motility to slow. Parasite infections as well are really common. Um, they can cause it. We've had a, a foreign body come in. Uh, I've had like three parasite <laughs> infections. I literally have had the whole gamut. Um, then there are other um, associated conditions and diseases that are known to be highly interlinked. Uh, any uh, type of um, disease to the intestinal system, so things like Crohn's um, and ulcerative colitis. Diabetes can also have a um, big impact on um, a person 
being at risk of de- developing SIBO as well. Uh, and then, like I said before, any kind of surgery or injury to the abdominal area, um, and particularly, you know, things like cesareans, appendixes being removed. Um, if you've ever been uh, in an accident and your abdominal area was injured, then then that can also lead to um, SIBO occurring. Uh, there's just literally a, a huge number of um, causes and sorry and risk factors that can lead to SIBO developing, um, and I've got some great fact sheets on on my website for any people that want to actually check the full list because there's too many to go through yeah. today. But they're the most common reasons why people can develop it. Yeah, certainly a big list there already, and I think it's quite fascinating that it's you know, definitely looking at people that are already susceptible. It's the same with parasites, similar to your example with your, um, you know, exposure to antibiotics. You just become more susceptible because your gut is not as robust. So, you know, the majority of our listeners are very well versed in the importance of gut health. So this is, again, another, I guess, affirmation of that, that it's so important to have a robust microbiome so that you're not susceptible to things like SIBO. It is, definitely. And um, and the importance around eating broadly. So the one of the things that often happens with people before they end up with a SIBO diagnosis, and, and for anyone listening, a red flag is if you've noticed that you've started to have to uh, reduce foods that you can eat. So you're self-restricting. You're saying, oh, I don't do so well with onions and I'm, I just won't eat onions now. And Oh gosh, these days I don't do well with white bread, so I won't eat bread. Um, that's an indicator that the gut is really not working at its optimal level. And the more we reduce our foods, the less variety we're giving our microbiome and that can lead to greater problems. And so what I see, because I get contacted by a lot of people from all around the world that are often pretty sick and what what their story seems to be is that they started to restrict their foods and they got more and more restricted until they were down to eating literally five foods, you know, maybe chicken and broccoli and carrots uh, and a couple of other things. And then they lived like that for some time before then they realized, hey, this isn't the way I want to live. But by the time they went and sought help, their microbiome has literally been starved of variety and and then it can get, you know, they can get really sick. So if you're noticing the first thing, if you if you notice that food is starting to become problematically problematic for you, that's the first sign that you need to go and seek help with someone that knows the gut, that knows it well, um, because it's a, it's a very early indicator that the um, the balance in your gut just isn't working or that there's uh, structural issues or that, you know, you might be experiencing something like leaky gut where it's causing an immune response. So, you know, get onto it before it gets too far advanced. That's my advice. Yeah, I completely agree because, you know, the food intolerances are definitely that that red flag, but you can certainly create more intolerances by being more restrictive. So, you know, I'll talk to you about um, low FODMAP in a moment, but, you know, these approaches really only need to be short-term so yes. that we can evolve the diet and prevent the problem being exacerbated. Exactly. And um, 
what I love now about the way I can eat is that I can eat really broadly once mm. again. And I, after years of self-restricting, and really I should have been onto it if if only I'd found someone all those years ago. But uh, you know, if only I'd been able to get onto it, say, twenty years ago, when when I was really starting to be aware of the impact food was having on me, um, uh, versus you know, to the point where I got two years ago where I was really limited. I had a very narrow spectrum of foods. And now I've had to work really solidly at rebuilding the health of my gut. My immune system, 70% of our immune system starts in our gut. It's our first line of defense. When I did some stool testing to see what was happening in my gut after clearing my SIBO, um, my immune system was virtually non-existent. There was almost no sign of it. So that's terrible from a just from a health perspective that that you know my my first uh, my first barrier against infection just didn't exist and so now I've got to go back and really undo all of those years of damage um, and it would have been so much easier if I'd started earlier yeah absolutely which is why I guess we're so lucky that science has evolved to where it is because the the testing for SIBO is so easy as you mentioned non-invasive a simple breath test that it's important to get that diagnosis you know if you do suspect that something's not quite right yeah what i will say to the listeners is uh, and one of my big passions and my and my the thing that i'm really driven to do is to educate our gps unfortunately our gps uh, don't seem to be as across SIBO as i would like them to be so i do hear from a lot of people saying i went to my doctor and i said to them i think i have SIBO and i'd like to do a breath test and they didn't know anything about it and they looked at me like i was a bit strange mm. um now that will change as our doctors become more up to speed they're really busy and I you know they've got to know so much and I appreciate they can't know everything about every condition um in Australia, our naturopaths seem to be and our alternative practitioners seem to be a lot more up to speed with a condition like SIBO. So if you don't have success the first time, if you're listening to this and you think, oh my gosh, that really sounds like me, if the first person you see says, I don't know what you're talking about, don't stop. Keep going until you um, you find a practitioner that does know what um, they're talking about. And obviously, I've got a lot of resources. If anyone that wants to connect with me, I'd be really happy to help point them in the right direction direction um, because it is important that you keep going until you find the right person or the right team that can help you return to health. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk more about um, the food. So I know in terms of the the treatment, there's often, a, I guess, a two-prong approach. Can you share with us your approach to treatment? Sure. So the there's you need to reduce the um, numbers of bacteria in the gut to to rebalance it so that it's back in a healthy proportion. Um, and you do that by firstly taking medication to kill off the excess bacteria. Uh, you can take antibiotics. Um, there are antibiotics that are used that, that stay within the small intestine, so they're believed to be a good option. I personally, after years of um, taking antibiotics, didn't want to take any more antibiotics. So I chose to take herbal supplements and they work just as well as antibiotics. They just take longer to work. So their job is also to kill off the um, excess bacteria. And there's a third option that some people um, take where they live on a liquid diet and uh, that starves out the bacteria. I didn't choose to do that and I didn't need to, um, but for some people that's an option. And then the second component or the second side of your treatment 
moment is around diet. So diet alone won't get rid of SIBO, but it will um, have a huge impact on your symptoms. And that's what people feel every day, particularly the bloating and um, constipation and diarrhea. So the first step is that you strip out all of the foods that the bacteria love. And that is things like all of your grains, pasta, bread, um, carbs, so potatoes, it's also high fermentable foods, so foods that can sit in the digestive tract and ferment that the bacteria love. And then also certain vegetables, sugars, so fruit is out, all types of sugar is out initially, alcohol, um, any foods that can um, feed the bacteria and keep them going. Um, so you move to a very, very healthy diet. So it's protein and um, certain vegetables in limited quantities and some good quality fats. Uh, and then once the symptoms reduce and you're working with your practitioner on this, you then start to reintroduce foods because the whole purpose and the goal, the end point is that you're eating broadly again. So you slowly reintroduce foods because you also want to be able to feed the microbiome first on in the digestive system. So we don't want to starve the bacteria in our large intestine um, when we're, you know, for too long when we're trying to kill off the excess bacteria in our small intestine. So as a minimum, people find themselves on the diet for three months. Um, I was on it for six months. And, uh, and by the end of the six months, I was eating much more broadly and I was able to, you know, start to reintroduce things like potatoes, which I realized I love potatoes and I really missed them when I was going through my treatment. I just would crave just baking a potato. <laughs> so I really looked forward to reintroducing um, that into my diet. Um, and what what I find with people is when you're first told you've got SIBO, you've got that initial relief because you think, thank God, I've finally got an answer as to what's going wrong. And then you get told, and here's what you can't eat. And you go, well, what do I eat? And when I started my treatment, um, I said to my naturopath, okay, well, where do I go and buy some cookbooks? And she uh. said, there aren't any cookbooks. And I said, what do you mean? I, like, surely someone's done cookbooks for SIBO. And she said, no, no one has. Here's a list. And she literally gave me a printout, a four-page printout. And she said, just eat these foods. And, uh, and so I said to her, well, what if I just document my recipes for you and I'll write them up and I'll just take photos on my iPhone and I'll, I'll give them to you at the end of my treatment. Would that help you help your other patients? And she said, oh, that would be amazing. Um, and then I, so I did that and I made it look quite pretty and gave it to her and, and all of her patients started saying, well, can we buy a book? Can we buy this as a book? And I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> I think I better do a, I better do a cookbook. Uh, so I had started my treatment and had asked my naturopath as to where I could get some cookbooks for this condition because I wanted to, you know, I needed help. I didn't know what I was going to eat. And she said to me that there weren't any. So I asked her if I should uh, document my food and take photos of it because I do love to cook and, uh, and give it to her at the end, which I did. I put together a PDF document for her and she shared that with her patients. And very quickly, people were coming back saying, can I buy that as a cookbook? <laughs> and so I realized that, oh gosh, maybe 
maybe I should turn this into a cookbook. And, and I'm now three cookbooks later and I have people all around the world contacting me, thanking me for making up SIBO-friendly recipes that they now feel like they've got help when going through this program. Um, but it is really important to note that, that it is short-term and the Australian SIBO specialist, Dr. Narala Jacoby, recommends that people are on it for no more than six months. Um, and her vision is really to get people back eating uh, broadly and healthily with a really wide variety of foods as quickly as possible. She doesn't want people to be living on a SIBO or a low FODMAP or an SCD or any of the types of diets for very long because she she feels concerned that we um, we shouldn't be overly restricted with our food. Yeah, I totally agree. So what is the connection between FODMAPs? Well, the SIBO biphasic diet, which is what I've followed and it's by Dr. Narala Jacoby, is a combination of the SIBO-specific diet, um, which was developed by Dr. Alison Seebecker, who's the American SIBO specialist, one of the leading ones, um, and a combination of low FODMAPs. So the intent of the diet is to reduce the fermentation load, the carbohydrate load and the sugar load on the digestive system. Um, but there are some slight variations. So um, some people do really well on just following a low FODMAP diet and treating SIBO. Um, but the SIBO diet um, looks at at what point certain foods are absorbed in the digestive tract. So really simple sugars in the second phase of the treatment, once you've sort of got your bacteria numbers down, can be reintroduced if they're tolerated. So things like honey can actually come into the diet, whereas honey is considered a high FODMAP food, so wouldn't be um, technically allowed on a on a low FODMAP diet. So there are some slight variations. Things like celery and cauliflower are also allowed in low quantities or small quantities on the SIBO diet, but they're considered a, a higher FODMAP food. So you'd be avoiding them if you were just strictly low FODMAP. So um but it, it is about finding what works for you. So it's using it as a guide and then experimenting. And I found that, you know, for instance, pumpkin, which is allowed on the SIBO diet from the beginning, I just couldn't tolerate it. As soon as I started to really deal with the bacteria, I'd get terrible flare-ups, terrible bloating and, and quite and feel quite gassy if I ate pumpkin. But technically it was allowed. Um, whereas raw cacao powder, which I – it wasn't on the list. So I assumed it was fine and I ate it from day one. I had zero problems with it. And it was only when I spoke to uh, Dr. Narala Jacobian and said, where is cacao powder on your list? <laughs> what? Where should I consider that as a classification? And she said, oh, well, that should be right at the end. And, and I was like, oh, okay, well, I've dealt with that without any problems. So yeah. um, when I'm working with people, it's about really experimenting for them as individuals and finding food that works for them as individuals because our microbiome is unique to us. And so what works for me isn't going to work for the next person necessarily. Yeah, I completely agree. And I guess that work is can be a little bit confusing because the expectation is that you get this list of food or this list of recipes that you can eat, but it's not that simple. I think if you look at it from the other angle, though, it can be quite empowering because if you could never eat the entire FODMAP list, that would be very challenging because it is so broad. Mm. And I think that's where some of the education is quite wrong. You know, what you mentioned before about um, prior to you developing these cookbooks, you were handed with a list. Like I 
Um, with all due respect, I think that's the wrong way about it because it can be quite overwhelming just to have a list of food that you can't consume. Exactly. And it, it, it was completely overwhelming. And I'm mm. a cook. I love to get into the kitchen and I love nothing more than coming up with new dishes. And I thought if I feel overwhelmed as a competent cook, what does the person that doesn't cook feel when they get this diagnosis? And one of the challenges, I, I did a survey with some practitioners in Australia that treat SIBO and I asked them what one of their biggest challenges was around working with people with SIBO and for them it was diet compliance, that people feel so overwhelmed when they get their diagnosis that they don't stick with it because they have just been told you can't eat any of the foods you're used to eating and that can be quite um, confusing and because you're also stripping out so many carbohydrates for pe for some people that just doesn't work for them either for me it worked I actually have discovered that I work my body feels so much better with a much lower carbohydrate intake but there's others that really don't do well on that and they need to have you know some rice or they might be able to tolerate some sweet potato and they need to be able to include that in their daily diet and um but it's frustrating for people that, you know, people do want a one-size-fits-all solution that they get given, you know, do this and don't do that and and then you will feel fine. Um, but unfortunately, our bodies just don't work like that. <laughs> yeah, I think it can be quite empowering though because, you know, our audience, um, a lot of them are endurance athletes and, you know, in terms of supporting their high-intensity training, we don't necessarily want everyone to be too low-carbohydrate and that's something we discuss quite a lot on the show and I think that's again an important point because you know you can obviously everyone has different levels of tolerance and it's going to be relative to the amount of movement you do as well. Exactly it's completely unique and I um whenever I talk to people I always say to them use my cookbooks and use the food guide as a guide, yeah. work what work out what works for you. Use what works for you, and make sure you're getting the right loads of food so that that you feel well. Because the most important thing is, once once you feel well, you're then empowered and energized to do more. Yeah. So that's the first point that I want to get people to is feeling better. Because when you feel better, you know you can take on the world. <laughs> but when you feel crap and you're lying in bed and you're thinking my my guts hurt and oh, I feel so sluggish and I'm exhausted and I feel fatigued, uh, you don't have the motivation to get up and do anything. So that's that's always the first step for me. Yeah, I completely agree. So you've obviously got some amazing cookbooks. Um, which are available on your website. Can you direct us there and also share with us um, information on your programs? Definitely. So my website is thehealthygut.co and I have uh, my three cookbooks on the website. Um, my cookbooks are 100% gluten-free, so they're really great for anyone that does follow a gluten-free diet. They're also really healthy, so I don't use any processed foods, and the only sugars that I use are natural raw honey, so I do keep um, the sugar load really um, quite low on in my cookbooks. Um, and it's just about eating real food, you know, getting back in the kitchen and, and making real food, but with real ingredients, you know, simple ingredients that you can buy from your local market or supermarket. I don't use fancy ingredients that people are like, what on earth is that? <laughs> and I think that can sometimes be a challenge of um, when you are trying to, to cook differently that sometimes, you know, some other people might use some really 
interesting sounding stuff, but they're not easily obtainable. So I wanted to make recipes that just anybody could use. Um, I also coach people um, who have SIBO, um, particularly because upon diagnosis, it is often overwhelming. And most people, when they've been diag- when they've just got their diagnosis, they've generally been suffering from IBS, as they've seen it, for years. And we work on the, the lifestyle and the food component. So I support people on how do you actually live with this condition when you've been told that you can't eat all of these foods that you you're used to eating? How do you manage going out and eating with friends and family? How do you tell people in your, um, you know, friends and family and and colleagues uh, network of what you can and can't do anymore? And and supporting the emotional side, um, because chronic illness is really quite taxing emotionally, uh, particularly if you've been very fatigued and you've been in pain for a long time. Um, So we work really closely with our clients uh, around those components. Um, And what I find is, what I love about what I do is that, um, you know, when we start with somebody that they're generally feeling pretty rough. And by the end of it, um, you know, they're just feeling so empowered because for me one of my one of my driving values is empowerment i love to help people to feel empowered to do more with them themselves and their lives and um and my clients just talk about feeling like they're now in control of their life and their body and their symptoms they now know what's happening in their body they've really um, tuned into their bodies, their symptoms. They know that if they eat a certain food, that it's going to make them feel a certain way. So they've got, there's no surprises anymore. Um, and it's also about conscious decision making. So I don't want my clients to feel like they're stuck in a rigid system, but you know, it's fine to make decisions to sometimes eat off plan if that's what you want to do but own it accept it uh do it and move on and um and don't beat yourself up about it and there's so much guilt around uh being chronically ill so we work around that as well and i I absolutely love what i do i get to work with people from all around the world and uh you know life is grand (laughs) (laughs) Really good. I mean, it's ama- you've got some amazing recipes and the resources are no doubt going to be extremely helpful to those that want to find out more or those that have had a diagnosis and certainly need that support. So we're very grateful for what you do. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to add in terms of what you've got coming up or anything else exciting for next year perhaps? Uh, next year is going to be... Uh more cookbooks. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, I've got a dessert cookbook coming out sometime next year. And I will also be publishing my healthy gut book, which is uh, my story on how I regained my health by following my five key pillars to health, which is awareness, nutrition, movement, mindset, and lifestyle. So I really look forward to sharing that with with everybody because, um, you know, if I can get well and uh, someone that was chronically sick for 36 years anyone can do it um it's just about you know taking ownership of your own health once and for all and uh and moving forward and and getting a really great healthcare team with um with you to help you on that journey so uh that's what's coming up for me next year and um uh, i'm looking forward to 2017 Amazing. That's wonderful to hear. So head to the show notes team for Rebecca's website, thehealthygut.co and all the information that we've discussed today. Thanks again for your time, Rebecca, and I'm sure we'll speak to you again in the near future. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show, Steph. You're welcome. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.